So this division into three should not be looked at as a rigid division. And even the term Tawheed itself as a science, when we think of the science of Tawheed, it is something which you will not find in the Quran. Where Allah says, Muslims should follow Tawheed. You will not find it anywhere. And you will not find actually in the Sunnah anywhere where Allah uses the term Tawheed itself. However, the Prophet did tell Mu'adh ibn Jabal when he sent, sent him to Yemen as the Emir, the governor of Yemen, he told him that you will be coming to a people of the people of the book, Christians and Jews. And he said that the first thing you should call them to on the time he used, he said was, and you watch this is what, this was the first thing that he was commanded by the Prophet to call the people to. And Yuwashidullah. Now this is the verb. The noun from this same verb, Yuwashidu, is Tawshid. So this is where it relates back. And in the Quran, when we say Allah says, Kulhu Ahad, Ahad also comes from the same root, Wahid, which comes, Tawshid comes from. So if there is an, an interrelation, there. But this science, which is known as the science of Tawheed, this was not something which was taught as I am going to go into the details of it by the Prophet directly, you know, the way Salah was taught five times daily prayer, you know, how many rak'ah in each Salah. I mean, this was the science of prayer that the Prophet taught in detail in the Quran that we know it now. But the science of Tawheed, which I will be going into, this was not taught by the Prophet in the way that I am going to be explaining it. You know, so I don't want you to, to think that, and, and if you go and read it and you read it, you find you don't find it anywhere, you wonder, well, where did he bring this from? So you try to understand that it has its origins in the teachings of the Quran and Sunnah, because whatever I am going to explain to you, it will be based on Quran and Sunnah. Because this is the basis of the religion, you know. It's not a question of my opinion and your opinion and his opinion and so on. No, it is from the Quran and Sunnah. But what has happened is that, you know, in time, sciences have arisen. For example, the science, you know, which you know is fiqh. You know, this is not something where the Prophet sat down with his companions and taught them fiqh the way you may learn fiqh in the schools today. No, it was not taught like this. Or hadith, you know, and the conditions for hadith, it was not taught. But these were sciences which arose in later times as the scholars gathered the information that had been handed down by the Prophet and began to categorize it into different categories to make it easier to study, easier for understanding. This was the purpose. And what we should understand also is that the science of Tawheed arose as a science in itself out of a need. Out of a need. A need which existed at a time in the development of the Muslim community which did not exist in the time of the Prophet and his companions. After the time of the righteous caliphs, when the leadership of Islam shifted 
from what was truly carried of the matter, which was with the will and the wish of the people, to teach him in what was known as the period of the Umayyads, or Dawla al-Umawiyya. This is when, during this period, when uh, the leadership changed, there was a change in the uh, teachings or in the false teachings which in the earlier period had no chance to develop. In the time of the Sahaba, in the time of the Prophet any false teachings were opposed by the leadership of Islam all the way down to the average person. When Islam spread into Egypt, into Syria, Palestine, Turkey, India, Sudan, Islam spread into areas where people had their own philosophy. In Egypt, Egypt, Alexandria was the center of Christian scholarship for many hundreds of years. So it was uh, Syria and Turkey. There were great schools of philosophy, Christian philosophy, as well as in what is now known Persia, which is now known as Iran, so on. So they had their own system of philosophy. And similarly in India, there was their own system of philosophy which evolved out of you know, Hinduism, etc. So you had people who had their own ideas about who God was and what man's relationship to God was. When these people entered Islam during the time of the Sahaba, the teachings of Islam were very clear, very you know, strongly supported by the, the leadership as well as by the community as a whole. When the leadership and the quality of leadership changed, then you found that the leadership did not have the kind of concern to protect the teachings of Islam that existed in the earlier period, in the time of the Khulafa al-Rashidun. So, what happened is that those people who had accepted Islam during the earlier period, not because they believed in Islam, but because the force of Islam was so strong, they could not oppose it militarily, they accepted Islam, you know, as a cover for their own activities. And they continued to work against Islam, but internally. So when the time of the Khulafa ended, and the leadership changed, then these people now started to talk about things which were contrary to Islamic concepts of God and man's relationship to God. Also, to be fair, there were also people who joined Islam sincerely, but because of the understanding that they had prior to Islam, some of which which was not clarified when they first joined Islam, they also spoke and 
they introduced also ideas which were foreign to Islam. As I said, during the period of the Khulafa, such ideas didn't have any chance to grow. If a person expressed an idea, it would be immediately dealt with. In the latter period, when the leadership changed, and they didn't care anymore about protection of Islam, but only protection of themselves and their own base uh, of power, we find that these ideas started to spread. And it then became the job of the Muslim scholars to protect the Ummah from these ideas. So the scholars of the time, they gathered the arguments of these people, and went back to the Qur'an and the Sunnah and refuted these arguments in a systematic fashion. And the process of refutation of these arguments is what produced the science of Tawheed. This is the origin of it. The refutation of the arguments which were brought Supporting ideas which were contrary to the pure Islamic teachings concerning God, His being, His essence, and His relationship to man and man's relationship to Him. This is the origin of the science. So as I said, the science is divided into three basic areas, Tawheed. The first area is known as Tawheed al-Rububiyyah or unity of Lordship. The second is known as Tawheed al-Asma al-Sifat or the unity of God's names and attributes. And the third is known as Tawheed al-Ibadah or Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah which is known as the unity of worship. The all three make up Tawheed as a whole. And they only represent certain aspects and they're all interrelated. The first section, Tawheed or Rububiyyah, and the term Rububiyyah comes from the Arabic word Rabb. You know when we say in Salah, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Rabb. The Lord is the sustainer of the universe. This is in reference to the belief that Allah is the creator and sustainer of the universe. What this means is that nothing happens in the universe except by Allah's will. We talked yesterday briefly about destiny. The concept of destiny comes within this aspect of Tawheed also. Nothing takes place in the universe except by Allah's will. Whether good or evil, it is all by Allah's will. And although we do not say that Allah does evil, all evil which does take place in the world is ultimately from Allah. It is by Allah's will. And Allah has even told us in the Quran to 
image from that ego which he created. In the second last surah, we say, Qul Falak, say, I seek refuge in the Lord of the dawn, from the evil which he has created. Now this evil has different aspects to it. There is relative evil. For example, you may be eating a piece of fish and a fish bone sticks in your neck, in your throat. This is terrible. You have to rush to the hospital and you have to cut open your, your throat and take this fish bone out. It's an evil thing. This is hard. But it's relative because that same fish bone, when it was inside of the fish, it was good for the fish. It is what helped to keep his body together so he could swim and live a pleasant life. So this is what we talk about. Some things are negative. Some are evil from the point of view that even the intent behind it is evil. When a, a person chooses to do evil and Allah allows that evil state to it, so this thing is really something evil in a more complete sense. Though, for the believer, that evil is a source of good. And so it still has a relative aspect to it. Because Allah said that the life or the affair of the believer is an amazing, wonderful thing. When good happens to him, he is thankful and Allah rewards him for it. And when a calamity, evil, befalls him, he is patient and Allah rewards him for it. So even out of that thing which we consider to be evil, there is good for us. If we recognize that it is in fact a part of the test of this life, and if we are patient and maintain our faith, Allah rewards us for being able to deal with it. So, we are saying that all good and all evil which takes place in the universe ultimately is by Allah's will. So what this means to us on a very practical, down-to-earth level is that we cannot depend on anything or anyone to bring good for us or to protect us from people. What is known as good luck charms? You know, people all around the world have certain things which are considered to be omens of good. If such and such happens, this means some good is going to happen. I'm sure in every country around the world, in your own country, you have this type of belief. And many of the Muslims may be holding this belief. In the West, we have the number seven. It's considered a lucky number. And in the West also, we have the number 13, which is considered a unlucky 
to such a degree, for example, that if you go to hotels in America, the majority of the hotels that you go to do not have a 13th floor. I mean, there is a 13th floor. Because if you count the floors from the outside, there is number 13. But when you're going up in the elevator, there is no button number 13. It goes 10, 11, 12, 13. Rooms. Rooms. Yes. Now, if you ask the owner of the hotel, you say, actually, do you believe in this? He may tell you, no, I don't believe in this. This is nonsense. But, if I put 13 on that elevator, nobody is going to rent. <laughs> nobody will rent the room number 13. So just from a practical economic point of view, I will just call it 14 if that's what they want. <laughs> I want better to call it 13. This is the degree that is affected and surely the houses too. We see the houses on the street, they'll be 10, 11, 12, 12 and a half, 14. <laughs> Anything else but 13. <laughs> I mean, this is the society which is supposed to be the most technological society on the earth today. And this is how deeply rooted their beliefs in all of them. As a matter of fact, there was one occasion in the uh, 60s, late 60s, when they sent an Apollo, uh, one of the Apollo uh, moonshots, one of the capsules were going to the moon, and there was something wrong with this, uh, the rockets, retro rockets on the capsule, and so it appeared that this capsule was going off into space. Now, for the Russians, this didn't mean anything. Because the Russians, in their own experiment, they sent up many capsules with people in it, and it didn't go right, and they just went off into space. You know, that didn't mean anything. Because people in Russia are expendable. You know? For the good of the society, they don't sacrifice any number of people. Whereas in America, it is the opposite. The people, you know, each individual, his life becomes so important, that you have people, mass murderers, you know, who have murdered, you know, a hundred people, and people will be fighting to say, no, this man should not be executed. Because if you kill him, it's not going to bring back the lives of the others we kill. So they will defend and fight and defend the life of that individual, right to live. Okay? These are the two extremes. So, for America, for one of their capsules, their uh, spaceships, to go off into space and these people die, this was a great, this great, something terrifying to the people. So the American, you know, the people at NASA, they were very worried. They tried everything to try to, you know, uh, make the mission not end up in disaster. Eventually they managed to use the, they had a lunar lander, the part of the spaceship which was to land on the moon. They were able to use the rockets on it to cause this, the space capsule to come close enough to catch the gravity of the moon and then circle around the moon and just come back to Earth. They had to avoid the mission of landing on the moon and they were just really happy when they finally got it to catch the, the gravity of the moon, circle around, come back and land on Earth. When it splashed down in the Atlantic and they brought, you know, they picked them up with the ship and they brought them back to Cape Canaveral, came out with helicopters, came out, and all the news people all rushed around them and gathered around them and they talked to the commander of the, uh, the mission. They asked him, you know, how do you feel? He said, I should have known this was going to happen. <laughs> how, 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 what would happen? I mean, did you see something wrong with the ship beforehand? He said, no. 
This was Apollo 13. <laughs> now this is a man who is a PhD in physics. Right? You know, one of the top scientists in the country. He said he should have known this was going to happen because this was Apollo 13. And it took off on Friday the 13th at 1300 hours. That's 1 o'clock. 1300 hours. So all these 13 coming together, he said, I, I should have known this was going to happen. Just too much. Too many 13. This is showing you how deep rooted these kind of concepts can be. And as I said, I'm sure if you look back in your own societies, in your own practices, you will find some of these things that you do. Now these things destroy this aspect of self. Because only good can come from Allah. And Allah has told us how we can gain good for ourselves. The reward for good is only good. You want to bring good for yourself, then do good. You are promised, and Allah guarantees good for you if you do good. That's the way you can guarantee for yourself good. But depending on any of these other objects or things to bring good for you, this is the opposite of sorry. It destroys. Or depending on any of these things to protect you from evil, included in this area is astrology. Many people believe that if you are born on a certain day, this, the star configurations have affected you in a certain way. In a way that certain people who specialize in the science of astrology or the pseudoscience of astrology, they are able to predict for you, you know, what type of personality you're going to be. So if you are born in July, between a certain date and another date, you are considered a Leo. Well, you're a Leo. You know, you have a Scorpio. You know, and, uh, you know, they have a variety of different signs which are assigned to you depending on the month in which you were born. And you have this column in the newspaper. Most newspapers have the astrological column, the zodiac. You go there and you can open it up and it will tell you, if you're born between these days and this date, today is a good day for business. If you have any plans, you know, it's a good day to make plans. Or if you're born in this day, no, it's a bad day for you to make plans. Watch out for this person, or look out. So what are they doing? They are trying to provide for you a means of avoiding evil and gaining good. Can they, in fact, do that? No. Only a law knows what is destined for you. And Allah has even told the Prophet to say in the Quran, if it were that I knew the unseen, what was to come, I would have only gathered around myself good and no evil would have befallen me. But Prophet had his tooth knocked out in battle. He had difficulties in life. 
no means of preventing evil in the total sense and gaining good for yourself other than through the dependence on Allah. And anything which comes between us and our dependence on Allah is among the things which we call shirk or the opposite of Tawheed. Now, the second aspect known as Tawheed al-Asma'u'l-Sifat this means that we understand Allah according to how He has described Himself to us. We do not describe Allah in a way in which He has not described Himself. Because only Allah knows Himself. So therefore, we can only describe Allah in the ways that He has revealed to us through His books of Revelation and through his prophets. The final being Prophet Muhammad And in understanding Allah, we do not give Allah's qualities to man, nor do we give man's qualities to Allah. This is the fundamental principle. Allah says in the Quran, there is nothing similar to Nothing like it. We may share with Allah certain qualities in, in the sense that we may be merciful, and Allah is merciful, but our mercy is a limited mercy, whereas Allah's mercy is a perfect mercy. So, what this means is that we do not give any human being the abilities which Allah has described Himself with. We do not give any aspect of His creation, whether it is the Kaaba, or a masjid, or a grave, or the Quran, or anything, any object the qualities to bring good for us or to prevent evil from befalling us. To believe that someone knows the future can tell you what is going to happen to you today. To go to such a person is a grave sin. So grave, Prophet Muhammad has said that whoever goes to a fortune teller. His prayer is not accepted for 40 days and nights. So serious. This is not a person who believes in the fortune teller. Just one who goes out of curiosity. He opens the newspaper to the page where it tells you about the signs. You are this sign, you are that sign. Because that page, that chart, is the fortune teller today. In the past they didn't have newspapers. So you had to go to the house of the fortune teller to a shop to get the information. Today the old same fortune tellers, they put it in the newspaper and you opening and reading that is going to the fortune teller. 
It's the same thing. When you do so, you have committed such a sin that Allah will not reward your prayers for 40 days and nights. Now I know some of you might say, well, then what's the point in praying? You know, if you were looking at the page today, or yesterday, well, no point in praying for the next 40 days or nights. No. No, because if you stop praying, you have committed an even greater sin. Because the Prophet says that the distinction between us and the disbelievers is Salah. Whoever abandons it has become a kafir, a disbeliever. Whoever gives up in Salah, whoever abandons prayer, does not pray, has become a kafir, a disbeliever. So you still have to pray. You pray because you have an obligation to pray. But the reward for your prayer, you do not receive. Of course, if you said that child out of ignorance, Allah, inshallah, is most merciful. And you may be forgiven. If you had no opportunity to get this knowledge, to be aware of this. But if you knew, prior, you had heard this before, or you had the opportunity to get this knowledge that you did not, then you are held responsible. Because the seeking of knowledge is compulsory on every Muslim. So, this is the severity of the crime. Said. Further, whoever goes to a fortune teller and believes in what the fortune teller says, he has disbelieved in what I have brought. In other words, he then becomes a disbeliever. That is kufr. To read those charts, your horoscope, to read it and believe it is kufr. Disbelief in Islam. It's very serious. So if you have friends, family, who are doing these things, then you have to try to get them out of it. It's your duty. To stop yourself and also to help others who are caught up in it. It is one of the traps of Satan. You have people who will inscribe the Quran on pieces of paper and roll it up, put it in little lockets and wear it around their necks, around their arms, around the waist of the baby. Believing that these things will protect them from evil. But in fact, what they're doing is just like the pagans who hang their animals. Because the Qur'an was not meant to be used in this session. If this was the way of using the Qur'an, Prophet would have been the first to hang it around his neck. And the Sahaba would have been right behind him. But they didn't do it. This is not what they did in the Qur'an. It's like going to a doctor 
for an infant. And he prescribes for you a medicine. And you take this prescription, fold it up, put it in your pocket, believing that carrying this prescription is going to make you well. As silly as that is, it is the same as hanging that hanging. Because the Quran was meant to be read, understood, and applied. Even the reading of the Quran, as it is done around most of the Muslim world today, is wrong. It may not necessarily reach the level of shirk, but it is, in a, to a large degree, a useless practice, wherein you find people mumbling the Quran, not understanding a word of what is being said. Or people who ritualistically read the Quran, not reflecting on its meaning, it, has, it is just an act that they do. Because Prophet Muhammad said that whoever reads one word of the Quran gets ten hasana, ten good deeds. However, when the Prophet said that to his companions, one he was saying that to people who knew Arabic. He was not saying it to people who didn't know what Arabic meant. He was saying it to people who knew Arabic. And this was a means of encouraging them to read the Quran. Why? Because the more they read the Quran, the more they reflected on the meanings, the more that the Quran would change their lives. This was the purpose of reading the Quran. So it would change our lives. It's a revelation of God. It is light. In a world of darkness, it is light. It shows us the way. But to just read it, just to mutter the, the letters and the words, not reflecting on the meanings, this is futile. It is a meaningless act. It is an act actually which could be a source of punishment for us on the day of judgment. Because we might be reading verses of the Quran and doing the opposite. Allah says in the Quran, for example, Don't throw yourselves with your own hands into destruction. Don't kill yourself. And after you finish reading the Quran, you go out and you smoke a cigarette. You're killing yourself. But you just read the way Allah told you not to kill yourself. You're going out doing exactly what Allah told you not to do. You're killing yourself. The Quran will be evidence against you on your own <coughs> You will be cursed by what you read. So, the Quran should be read regularly, but read slowly and with understanding. So if you don't understand Arabic, when you read Arabic, you must read the translation along with it. You must. If you want to get benefit from the Quran, you better do that. Because the Sahaba said that they didn't used to 
not study more than five verses at a time. And they wouldn't go beyond these five verses until they understood all that Allah had to say to them, all the commandments, all the prohibitions, all the guidance, then they tried to apply this, then they went on to the next five verses. Now we will sit there in Ramadan and we will go through the whole time. One juice every day. And we proudly then say we've read Quran in Ramadan. And we look at it, when you look into our lives, that reading of the Quran has had no effect. We are what they call Ramadan Muslims. You know? During the rest of the year you are lazy in Salah, you know, not reading the Quran and you know, not very charitable. But during Ramadan, you're good. You're good Muslim. Praying all your Salah, your Sarawih, reading Quran, your heart, and you know, the Ramadan Believing somehow that these rituals that we do in Ramadan will be acceptable to Allah and will cover for all the evil that we have done during the rest of the year. This is delusion. It is ignorance of the religion to think that rituals, acts of worship which are done in a ritualistic fashion will benefit us. This is a big mistake. So, when we look at the Quran, we have to read it, reflect on its meaning and act on it and not use it like a magical charm. We hold it in such reverence that we put it on the highest shelf in the house and it stays there all during the year, dust piles up on it until Ramadan. It takes it down, blow out the dust, rattle through the world and then you put it back up. <laughs> this is how we revere the Quran. Big mistake. Really. We should try to benefit from the Qur'an the way that the Prophet was in the past. We also have the belief of some people that when times of difficulty arise, it is allowed for us, in fact recommended, to call on these people, to help us. One of the popular people that Muslims tend to call on is Abdul Qadir Jilani. When a calamity strikes, you find people calling out, Oh Abdul Qadir, help me! Save me! And they have rationalized this practice. They say, for example, calling on Abdul Qadir, praying to him, or calling on Muhammad or praying to him, this is just the same as when we in this life, for example, we want to get something done. Here we have a problem. You as an individual, you have a problem working in this uh, guest house. You can't just go walking into the, you know, Mudir's office, the headman, knock on, his, walk in the door and tell him I have this problem. No, you have to go to your work supervisor. The work supervisor here will talk to you know, some of the other people and eventually they will talk to the mudir and your problem will be solved. 
It is simple. You, you are getting sins. So many sins you commit every day. How can you stand before Allah and call directly on Allah? No. You must call on somebody who is pure and holy, close to God, what they call the saints, the holy people, prophets, you call on them, ask them to pray to Allah. Then you pray to However, when they do this, what they have done is they have brought Allah down to the level of man. They have made Allah like a man, like a mudir, who has to, you know, he does things for you to intermediary. But Allah is well known. He is unique. If you want to call on him, call on me and I'll you finish. You don't need to call on anybody. Only you do we worship and only you, from you, do we seek help. Allah is unique in this aspect. And if we use any intermediary, then we are making Allah like His creation. Now, the final aspect of Tawheed, a way to show your love of the Quran, which is an act of worship, which Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu didn't know about. He didn't know about it. Surely not. Because the religion was complete with him. Prophet Muhammad said also, as you put it by Aisha, Man ahdata fi amrina ma laysa minhu fawwarad. We want to bring something new in Islam, which is not from it. It is rejected, Allah doesn't accept it. And the Prophet Muhammad said very clearly, Ma darastu shayah, yukarribukum ila Allahi illa wa amartukum bihi. There is nothing which will bring you closer to Allah than I left without commanding you to do it. In other words, anything which can bring you close to Allah, I have commanded you to do it. That is an act of worship. So, if we are to do anything, which we feel is pleasing to Allah, which will bring us close to Allah, it must be based on a commandment from the Qur'an or a commandment from the Sunnah for it to be an acceptable form of worship. Otherwise, we are in fact worshipping Allah in a way which is not pleasing to Him, a way which is not acceptable to Him. So, not only do we have to be sure that all of our acts of worship are directed to Allah alone, but they have to be sanctioned, approved by Allah and His Prophet. Now this represents, these three aspects represent the fundamentals of the concept of Tawheed in Islam. The opposite of that, as I said, is shirk. That is, the worship of other than Allah, in whatever form it comes. If one denies Allah's existence, then one worships other than Allah. Because in denying the existence of God, human beings must explain their existence by giving the qualities of God to His creation. 
Because when you ask the atheist how we came to be where we are today, he will say, by chance. By chance. And everything, when you look into the life of the individual, everything which happens is by chance. So his whole destiny, his life, his creation, everything, his existence is controlled by chance. So what he has done, this is the fact of Allah. But he has, in denying Allah, he now gives the powers of Allah to a blind force which he calls chance. And as I said in the lecture yesterday, all of the other religions, that believe in God, in fact, worship His creation, while believing that they are worshiping God. And what they are committing in doing that is shirk, the gravest sin, the only unforgivable sin. Shirk has two aspects to it. The major shirk, which is the actual act of bowing, prostrating to other than Allah. And it has another aspect which is called minor shirk, or hidden shirk. And this is doing acts of worship for other than Allah. You're making salah, and the mutawa comes in. The person who you feel is a mutawai, you call mutawai, religious man. So you want to impress him on, you know, how good a Muslim you are. So your salah now, instead of being over in one minute that you usually finish it in, it takes five minutes. You're making very slow salah. You're not doing it for Allah. You're doing it because he came here. This is hidden shirk. And this can affect us without us even knowing it. And this is one thing that we have to be very careful of. Prophet had told us that hidden shirk in the Ummah, in the nation, in the body of the Muslims, is like a black ant crawling on a black stone in the middle of a moonless night. Can you see a black ant on a black stone in the middle of a moonless night? <coughs> Telling you that it will creep up on you without you even realize. You may start to do something with a good intention and that intention can change. So we have to be very careful about what we do. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ emphasized the importance of intention. إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالِ بِالنِّيَةِ Deeds are judged by their intent. Before we make salah, we have to have the correct intent. Before we do any act of worship, anything which we consider to be good and important, we should try to remember Allah. Remember that we are doing it for the pleasure of Allah, so that we do not fall into hidden shirk. So, this inshallah summarizes the concept of Tawheed and Shirk in Islam in a very you know, simple fashion. Uh, in the future sessions, we will look at some 
other aspects of Tawheed and Shirk, you know, as we look at some of the other areas which are related to Tawheed, which affect our lives. I will stop here now and um, allow you a chance to ask any questions that you would like to ask. Mm-hmm. Well, if your intent is not to believe that this in some way, shape or form is going to protect you from evil, what you are wearing for a decorated person, and of course for a male, Muslim, it's not allowed for you to use this, but it's for female. Yes. This would not in itself be for him. <coughs> However, Islamically it would be something you would avoid. Why? Because all it takes is, for example, for you to have bought it for your wife. Would this be intent of it being a form of jewelry, not a thing to protect? You die, your wife dies, Satan comes to your children and say, well, to wear this to protect. That's why your father bought it for your mother. That's why your mother wore it. And they can now start doing that, thinking that it's going to protect them. So you can inadvertently cause people to go astray by you doing that. Other people may take your, your, your example without understanding why you are doing it. So these types of things, you know, things which, which people have misunderstood or are in confusion about, as Muslims we try to avoid these areas. Things which can lead in that fashion. This is why, for example, you know, when alcohol was prohibited, the Prophet also prohibited the containers in which alcohol used to be kept. They were to be broken. It commanded them to break all these So as a Muslim, for example, it is not acceptable for you to have a bottle you know, which was used to carry, you know, Johnny Walker or some, you know, alcohol, but you're using it to keep water. It's not acceptable. Unless you have no, nothing else. You're, this is desperation now. This is all you have to contain, keep your water in, so you have to use it. But to choose it, or you may find ornaments, you know, they have lampshades where they'll take a bottle of scotch, whiskey, whatever, and they'll melt the bottle and cause it to turn into an ashtray or into a, a lamp or something like this. You say, nothing, we can't keep it. We can't keep it. You avoid these type of things which are associated with the drinking of alcohol. Similarly, those types of practices, because people use the Quran and it is better to avoid it. Although I'm not saying that haram keep it, keep it. I'm just saying from a point of view of the harm that might come from it, it is better to avoid it. Excuse me, I have one question. Most of our Asian Muslims in our area, they have one kind of belief. When uh, in any house the children when can or can they they have lived after a week or fifteen days uh, they have to 
bring the two good length and the cut and this is for we call Hakiga and they believe this is Sadaka. But this this need they uh, divide in relative or neighbors. And after when someone de- death in one area, the people what they're doing after third days they have to collect the people and uh, they will make again this kind of sadaka, they cook the food and lot of people they came around 30, 35 or 40 and they read the Quran and they have believed that this Quran, the 30 Jews when they are going to finish and the person who gets, he will be get so up from this Quran and not only this, when after uh, 40 days they have been following same, again for same measure no? the people collect different place to place and they cook food for necessary for everybody like function and uh, uh, they are reading Quran and they believe this is for swap for two person who take and during this family they are spending a lot of money so we actually still myself is uh, confused how this through to do not so the idea of Aqiqa <coughs> this is based on the teachings and the practices of the Prophet on the seventh day of the fifteenth but on the seventh day after the child is born the child is circumcised the head is shaven the hair is weighed its value in gold is given as sadaqah and an animal or two two in the case of a male one in the case of a female or one also in the case of a male possible the animal is slaughtered and the meat is given to the poor and needy, some to neighbors, some eaten, whatever. This is Aqiqah, this is Sunnah from Prophet to do so. Uh, if somebody is not able to provide food, somebody is food. No, you do what you can. If you cannot slaughter the animal, well then you just do the circumcision, the shaving of the head. You can't give, you don't, you cannot afford to give, so you just do the act that you are able to, you know, and also, you, the child is named on this day, you know, according to Prophet's practice, this is why in some countries they call it the naming ceremony, naming ceremony. Well, the seventh day is the sunnah, however, you know, if for one reason or the other you are not able to do it on the seventh day, then on another day after that is possible. Some recommend like the 14th, the 21st, you know, in sevens after that. However, there is nothing Prophet said specifically. Matter of fact, he did aqiqah for himself. You know, when he was a grown man. You know, and I'm sure he didn't go to count to see was this a multiple of seven or not. <laughs> you know, he just did it. He decided he was going to do it and did it. So there is no thing about really about multiples. You may do it, you know, as the occasion, you know, arises. But the preferable day is that of the seventh. <coughs> However, to set it on the fifteenth day, as traditionally done, say, in some countries, this is wrong. If you did it on the fifteenth, without the intention of setting it on the fifteenth, it would be okay. But once you do it believing that it's supposed to be done on the fifteenth, because everybody else does them, then it becomes wrong. So you see, an act which in itself may be good and acceptable, with the wrong intention, it can become wrong and unacceptable. Now, in terms of when a person dies, 
I mean, this practice which they call sometimes Khatmul Quran, where they gather the people and every person takes a juice, you know, a portion of a juice, and they're reciting the Quran all on top of each other, you know, and everybody rattling it away, nobody knowing what it means, everything. And we're saying that when you look at that, and look at what we talked about concerning the recitation of the Qur'an and what it means to recite the Qur'an you can see that this is obvious nonsense besides it not being from the practice of Prophet Muhammad at all he did not do it nor did his companions do it besides that it is nonsense it is a meaningless ritual that is being done which has no value the idea of reading Qur'an and I'm asking Allah to, to give that uh, reward of the recitation of the Qur'an to the person who has died. This practice, there are different amongst the scholars as to whether it is acceptable or not. Now, if we use the basic principle that what the Prophet commanded and what Allah commanded is what is acceptable and what they did not command is not acceptable as worship to, to apply that principle then surely we know there is no evidence from the practice of the Prophet nor in the Quran for the recitation of Quran and the giving of the reward to someone who has died there is no evidence for it we do know that the Prophet had allowed people to fast on behalf of some people who were unable to fast, who died unable to fast. Okay? So here is an act of worship being done and the reward for it is being given to someone else. The person actually who does it is also being rewarded. But this was to a relative. And this was concerning Hajj and concerning fasting. And if it were also a case of zakah or something is owed, for you to go and pay that zakah on behalf of your father and so and so, this is known acceptable. But reading the Quran or making salah, and these are the forms, these were things which were not done. Some people say, well, if we look at the general principle wherein the giving of the fasting was allowed and the hajj on behalf of others was allowed, we say the principle from that is that doing acts of worship and asking Allah to accept it from others is allowed. I would say, well, really, this area is a shady area. It is an area which is not clear because the Prophet ﷺ spoke clearly on one and he didn't speak on this other. And really, it is not allowed for us to make, you know, analogies in this area, this type of thing. Because these are acts of worship, you know. So, really, it comes down to yourself. You know, what you feel uh, is good inside yourself. If you feel from the different arguments that this one seems to be okay to you, well then, you do it based on your understanding. You know, I'm not going to say do this or don't. But I say we have certain principles. And your safest way is to stick to those principles. That you are sure of. You know, the things which Allah commanded, the things which Rasulullah commanded, these things you are certain if you do them, they are accepted. And if you avoid the things which they didn't command, you are certain also that you won't fall into wrong. 
That is the status card.
actually he don't do it without the will of Allah. So then my question is to whom I should give thanks for it? You asked a living person yes, to do something person. for you. Yes, and he did it for me. So he did favor to me. So I should give him thanks in return. Yes. Right. My question is to whom I should thanks for Because he is not doing without Allah's will. Sure, sure. I mean Allah is the one who should be thanked first and foremost. And knowing when you thank him, you are thanking him for helping you through the agency of this person. But usually it's common practice to whom I get the thanks. And to give the thanks. Uh, thanks. Indeed I give thanks to him. Yeah. But I feel that if I give him thanks, I'm doing shit. Because he's not doing himself. In fact, Allah helped him to do this. Well, I wouldn't call it shit. It is neglect. It's more Yeah, it is neglect on our part that we tend to thank the people around us without thanking Allah first. This is why Prophet you know, told us that whenever you know, we uh, give any kind of talk or we have any kind of discussion or whatever, we should thank Allah. See, by thanking Allah there, Alhamdulillah, starting off whatever we have to say with Alhamdulillah, whatever, you know, this is ensuring that whatever other thanks we give to others, we are recognizing the thanks due to Allah above all else. Right? So we try to keep Alhamdulillah as a part of our normal conversation, it should be there. So though we might cite the person on the instant, still in our conversation we say Alhamdulillah. So we remind ourselves that really all thanks is due to Allah. But the shirk comes when we thank this person and we deny Allah's agency, that it is really from Allah. This is when it becomes shirk. A certain portion of the cases of healing, you know, faith healing, I mean, is on the part of the person himself, right? But where there is an outside agency, as in the case, say, Mother Teresa is doing that, then it would be easier. And for, for her, that would be confirmation for her and all those who depend on her that Jesus was God. to do, you can, it could be seen in their actions, I mean it just depends on how severe the case is, mm-hmm. you know, the, this is what you're talking about now, the different levels, they go all the way to actual possession, you know, where you have documented cases, historically, and people who have been possessed, I mean in the West they call it multiple personalities, you know, where they have no explanation of how it takes place, mm-hmm. but they have documented it, people who will have different personalities inside of themselves, talking, going through different expressions, things which are clearly documented. These are cases of possession. 
Seek refuge. So tell you how, you know, from Satan. Just tell you how careful the Muslim should be in his daily life. He's constantly aware of the forces that are around him. It's not that he becomes like a, you know, like a superstitious kind of individual who, you know, is just scared of every little thing, anything a person says, and, you know. No, you don't want to go to that extreme too. I mean, you know that if you're doing what is required of you, what Islam has provided for you, you're on the right path, you're protected. If something happens, you look into yourself to see, you know, where did you fall? What, you know, you may have been reading Quran regularly for a few days, whatever, you got lazy, you smacked off, you got hit. So you recognize. I mean, there are going to be factors. There are going to be reasons why you got affected. But as long as you use the system that Islam has provided for protection, then, inshallah, you will be protected. Well, you know, your duty as regards non-Muslims, I mean, you can't go so much to the problem of how the jinn is affecting them in their life. I mean, what you have to... It's going to affect you too. Yeah. And how it affects you. Yeah, no, what I mean is that, I mean, how you deal with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, how you deal with them is that you have to give them the message of Islam. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you can do for them. Because that ultimately will, can change the situation. If they grasp the message and they change their lives, that can change the situation. Other than that, I mean, if it's a case where a person is actually possessed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that the, the, the process of exorcism is done in Islam. It's a valid practice. And it is done in uh, ways which are defined in the Sunnah in terms of recitation over the person by a person who believes strongly, etc. And that person can be, I mean, the jinn that's affecting that person can be given up. But it may be given up on a temporary basis because the fact that if that person themselves do not, doesn't change their own life patterns and start to try to build up the foundations of faith which will ultimately protect them, then they're allowed to fall back into it again. Well, this is how it is uh, usually translated. We call it Samun. Nine Samun. Yeah. Well, in English, this is how they translate it. Because the, the fire is like, it's like a, a wind, a fiery wind. Which, you know, in the, the interpreters, in explaining it in Arabic, they've explained it in that fashion that, you know, it is not something clouded with smoke, Duhan, without but just a, a burning wind. And how old does Islam feel about the weather forecast, especially the one that happened in the West Middle East? They have so much snow and a blizzard and nothing like that. Well, I mean, this is based on, on observations. 
they got classified to take you know, pictures of the earth, they see the movement of the clouds, they knew so much, you know, the, the density of the cloud structure, etc., etc., indicates that it will be so and so and so. Of course, in the West, the way they're saying it, you know, they actually know the future. And when you look at it on the Arabic channel here, when the person finished saying that it's going to rain tomorrow, he says, Inshallah. I mean, this is, this is what Muslims would say. This is what is acceptable, that you've made a prediction, Inshallah. If Allah wills, it will happen in this fashion. But this is based on, you know, calculations. This is scientific type calculations. But that's why I said you have to add this quality or this qualification of Inshallah because none of our calculations are 100% accurate. This is why, for example, even the calculation of, of the new month, you know, Ramadan so and so, we do not rely on the calendars which have been set by uh, the astronomers. We also rely on the site. The site has to be there because those calendars are not 100% accurate. Even, even if it's 100% accurate, we should also say, inshallah, who created the reasons for this to be happening? Could you change them before it happened? For instance, if casting the this cloud is coming this way and eventually uh, it's gonna go to to the state of you know, and our calculation is hundred percent gonna go there and uh, my could, uh, could change the weather somehow, could go somewhere else. I mean, that happens all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very true. I mean, we say, inshallah, because it is inshallah, by Allah's will, it happens however it doesn't happen. However. But man's calculations are never 100% accurate. Never. I mean, there may be, here one time, but there may be other times when they don't. Any other questions or comments? We ask Allah to accept our intentions of being here as intentions meant solely for Him and that He give us the courage to act on the knowledge that we have gained today to pass it on to our brothers and sisters. Amen. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألف لام تلك آيات الكتاب وقرآن مبين وبما يود الذين كفروا لو كانوا مسلمين لهم يأكلوا ويتمتعوا ويلمهم الأمل فسنف يعلمون وما أهلكنا من قرية إلا ولها كتاب معلوم ما تسبق من أمة أجلها وما يستأثرون وقالوا يا أيها الذي نزل عليه الذكر إنك لمجنون لو ما تأتينا بالملائكة إن كنت من الصادقين ما ننزل الملائكة إلا بالحق وما كانوا 
قال فإنك من المنظرين إلى يوم الوقت المعنون قال رب بما أغويتني لأزينن لهم في الأرض ولأغوينهم أجمعين إلا عبادك منهم المخلصين قال هذا صراط علي مستقيم إن عبادي ليس لك عليهم سلطان إلا من اتبعك من الغاوين وإن جهنم لنوعدهم أجمعين لها سبعة أبواب لكل باب منهم جزء مقسوم وَإِنَّ جَهَنَّمَ لَمَوْعِدُهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ لَهَا سَبْعَةُ أَبْوَابٍ لِكُلِّ بَابٍ مِّنْهُمْ جُزْءٌ مَّقْسُومٌ إِنَّ الْمُتَّقِينَ فِي جَنَّاتٍ وَعُيُونٍ ادْخُلُوهَا بِسَلَامٍ آمِنِينَ وَنَزَعْنَا مَا فِي صُدُورِهِمْ مِنْ غِلٍّ إخوانا على سور متقابلين لا يمسهم فيها نصر ولا هم منها بمخرجين نبئ عبادي أني أنا الغفور الرحيم وأن عبادي هو العذاب الأليم ونبئهم ضيف إبراهيم إذ دخلوا عليه فقالوا سلاما قال إنا منكم وجلون قالوا لا تنجل إنا نمشوك بغلام عليم قال أبشرتموني على أن مسني الكبر فبم تبشرون قالوا بشرناك بالحق فلا تكن من القانطين قال ومن يقلق من رحمة ربه إلا الضالون قال فما قطبكم أيها المرسلون قالوا إنا أرسلنا إلى قوم مجرمين إلا إلا امرأته قدرنا إنها لمن الغابرين قال فما خطبكم أيها المرسلون قالوا إنا أرسلنا إلى قوم مجرمين إلا آل لوط إنا لمنجوهم أجمعين إلا امرأته قدرنا 